Well, it's so good to see each one of you are here this evening. Thanks for joining us. We're so glad you're here with us as we continue our journey through the Bible and the book of Philippians. If you're joining us online, welcome. We're glad that you're with us here this evening. The psalmist said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. And I know that you're here tonight because your soul longs after the Lord. And I encourage you to have that attitude tonight as we worship him and we tell him, God, we're here to worship you because you are a great God. So if you're able, I invite you to stand and let's worship together. Yeah. 
Open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to pick up at verse 27, where we left off. And in Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, reminding you of the key passage that we find in this text, in this letter, where Paul would write to the church in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We find ourselves in a, in a pickle. It, 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 we're stuck between wanting to, to be here and enjoy life and family and, and such things. But like Paul, we long to be in our heavenly home. And within that, and you know, it's only, it, it only gets better and it's only upward from here. And it's super cool to be able to, to think about that God's got a place and a, a land for us. But we're not there yet. So the challenge that we run into is how should we live? How should we live while we're still in this place? And, and really to be able to take a look at it, as Paul's writing to the church of Philippi, it was, in his mind, the model church. Out of all the churches that Paul had, had planted and, and was pastoring and shepherding and writing to, the church of Philippi was the church. They, they, they had it. But... You know, there's a lot of people, they look for that, like, perfect church. You ever look for that perfect church? You're just like, I'm looking for the perfect church. And we have this church in, in Christian, or this phrase in Christendom. And you talk to people and say, well, what church are you going to? Well, I don't know. I'm church shopping. What do you mean you're church shopping? 
Well, you know, I'm looking for the I'm looking for the perfect church. I'm looking for the perfect church. I hate to pop your bubble. There is no such thing as the perfect church. And as it goes, if you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. As good as Philippi is, and they were good, they still had some problems. One of which was the one thing that challenges all churches, and it's this, it's this creep of disunity, where disunity and complaining and being disgruntled has a tendency of kind of creeping in, being dissatisfied. And so that was something that Paul would, would he would give encouragement to, to the church of developing unity and behavior. Now, mind you, Paul is writing this letter, along with some others, from a jail cell in Rome. He's chained to a prison guard, and, and the church of Philippi had, were also in danger of becoming a little frustrated um, and sad because they would think, well, if Paul's in jail, then that's the end of all things. And it really isn't. Paul was thankful for where he was. And last week we looked at how to find joy in circumstances. Do you realize you can choose joy in all circumstances? It really is a cognitive decision. And in whatever situation you find yourself in, there is going to be something to be joyful over. The problem is, in our human nature, we gravitate, gravitate towards the negative within this. And Paul is like, I am grateful that I am in a Roman cell, chained to Roman guards. I get a new one every six hours, and I get to evangelize. Where the church in Philippi are like, oh, Paul, we are so sad because we don't know what's going to happen. You might die out there. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in. So he would choose joy. And he wanted to preach this joy to all those that were in this letter, hearing this letter, that they would choose this. The other thing that we're going to continue on is to see, okay, if I'm, if I'm to choose joy and that's my attitude, then how should I live? And, and Paul tonight's going to get pretty practical as he writes to the church in Philippi as he exhorts the church to be Christ-like. He uses a word that tells us that in this text, and mind you, chapter um, numbers and verses, they're not divinely inspired. They were just put there so we can kind of find our way around. And so verse 27, he picks up with a, a, a word, and it's a literary usage of the word only. And, and Paul has... I think Paul has got like a little ADHD, you know. Paul would get going on something and then he'd run a rabbit trail on, on another thing. Or then he'd run, run, you know, sideways on a thought or he'd start speaking in one really long sentence without any punctuation in those things. So this is one of those kind of rabbit trails that Paul goes on within this from verse uh, 26, actually verse 27, on down to chapter 2, at the end of verse 30, where he kind of runs this and, and he gets back to it. But there are three primary exhortations. You know what an exhortation is? Exhortation is, is a word of, like, I really strongly encourage you to do this. And so as he's writing to the letter, this letter to the Philippians, he's being very pastoral. He wants them to do this. Why? 
because they'll be successful. So the three things we'll see tonight, it all has to do with unity. Being unified in the Spirit, verses 27 to 30. Being unified in mission, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And then unified in witness, chapters 12 to 18. And so then after that, he returns back to his letter to the Philippians to tell them about how he's going to send Paul or Timothy and Epaphrodites to him because he can't go as a visitor. So let's just jump right in as he's finishing off this this concept of uh, to live is to Christ, to die is to gain. Then in verse 27, he says, only, so meanwhile, this is my attitude. This is where I'm finding my joy in you. Only you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in no, one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too is from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, and you're not going to like the second part, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So Paul starts out, and in the first thing, he says, I want you really to be unified in spirit. I want you to be one in spirit. And he's not talking about being one in the Holy Spirit, but he's talking about being one or unified in the essence of your being. One of the challenges is, is that we can deviate, and he says to stand firm in one spirit, one mind, striving for the gospel. Now, it's interesting because he's exhorting the church, and he says, look it, I want you to be in one spirit in the faith. Notice the word the that's before faith. The is what's called a definite article. It's not one spirit in a faith. It's one spirit in the faith. Implying there's only one faith. There's only one true faith. When you talk with your friends and you say, hey, you know, do you go to church? Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, you know, I got this belief or I got this. And there's like this, this vast array of all these different faiths. The reality is there is only one true faith. And that's in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's only one true God. That sent his son, as Paul is going to allude to. And within this, understanding that it is one true faith, and that unity in the faith is going to be demonstrated by behavior, by how you get along. One of the hard things about churches today is that churches don't get along together. Why? Because they overemphasize doctrinal differences that in eternity really are not going to matter. What really matters? That you're saved by grace through faith. The faith. Not of works. That Jesus has done that transformational work within you. And so, when you take a look at somebody and you want to know, are they in the faith? What should you look at? Should you listen to their words? Or should you look at their actions? Listen to their words and see if their words match their actions and their actions match their words and if both match Jesus. If they match 
the, the, uh, a bibliocentric, Christocentric lifestyle. That's essential within that. And that's the, the key part. It, it, your life really does demonstrate what you believe in. And we see a lot of heresies. We see a lot of people that are claiming to be Christians, but their lives don't match anything in Scripture. Do you know of these people? Have you seen them? Where they'll say, yeah, I'm a, I, I believe in Jesus, but you know, I'm living like hell. I'm living like the world. Well, really? It, 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 what, what you're doing is not matching what you're saying. It's inconsistent. And that creates disunity. Because the idea of unity is you're not of the same mind. And so it's a difficult thing. One of the difficulties that we find in churches of not being one in faith and one in spirit is infighting and bitterness. Now, I know churches never have a problem with divisions. And I know they never have a problem arguing about things. I know that never happens. But maybe in Paul's case, there was two ladies that were having a problem in a home study. And so he's going to address them as, as we're going to get to later in the letter. So he's actually setting up the, the stage for gently dealing with these two women that are arguing in this, in this group. And he says, look at the believer. As a believer, we need to stand in one spirit. I love what he says here. He says that you are conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So when I see you, you, you you're not absent. And I hear that you are striving together. That, that idea of striving together literally means to be bound together. That, that you are connected one to another in one spirit. St. Augustine once said this, and I, I really love this quote, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. In essentials, we have to be unified. In the essentials of doctrine, we've got to be unified. Non-essentials, eh, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be liberal or I'll be open with it. But even when we discuss these things, I must always do it in love. Always do it in love within us. For example, as Paul would write, and if you read the letter to the church in Rome, if you, if you would read that letter, you're going to find that the Roman church had great theology but poor unity. There was infighting between the Jews and the Gentile Christians that were coming from their historical backgrounds within this. And, and that would affect the church. So this idea of striving together is to labor alongside. The idea is a, it's an agrarian idea. The idea is two people working in the same field, working together for the same goal. Do you realize that, that our church and the church down the street, whether it's Warren Baptist or, or Scappoose Foursquare or, or wherever, Yankton or wherever, that we're, all, that we're all working in the same field together for the same goal? Different fellowships, different styles of worship, maybe different liturgy and different things that we, that we got going. But striving together for the same goal. What's that? For the gospel. What's the one thing that you've got to be unified in? In the spirit and in the gospel. Church membership doesn't save you. Jesus does. And bringing the gospel out. And so Paul says it's, we're striving together 
Paul would see this evangelism and discipleship as striving together, and he would see the church of Philippi doing that, striving together, working for the same goal. And Paul is saying, I'm in prison, and I'm working for it here, and you're in Philippi working here, and those in Galatia and the region are doing it there, and Corinth are doing it there. It's the end goal. Fulfilling the Great Commission. Going making disciples, baptizing people and, and discipling them. Verse 28, he then says to stand firm without being afraid. Notice what he says, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. One of the pictures that he uses is this idea of a horse being spooked. Don't be afraid. Have you ever seen a horse get spooked? Scary. I, I, I've been around horses a bit. I learned a very valuable lesson one time when I was trying to put a horse into a vet's stall. Wear gloves when you're holding the rope. We were bringing this horse in, and he got spooked in this stall, and he ran backwards, and I could not let go of that rope fast enough. And I had this rope run across my hand, and that horse got spooked. Now, the foolish thing about me is, little me is going to stop this big old horse from doing what this horse wants to do. Well, the same concept that Paul uses, he says, don't be afraid or don't get spooked by what's going on with me. Don't get spooked by these enemies. Don't get spooked. And as Christians, so many times we can get spooked by oppression. We can get spooked by some of these things that, that will attack us. But one of the things that ends up happening is as the church comes together and we're unified together, we can be bold together. There is strength in numbers, isn't it? When you are together and you're praying together and you're gathered together, there's an opportunity to be in that, that oneness, that sense of unity. To be able to face opposition. I love in the movie 300. And they would form this, this dome of all the shields when they were being attacked. If you haven't seen it, it's an amazing scene. Because all the soldiers get around and they get around and they, they all huddle together and they create the shields. And there's a dome that's over them and that protects them. Why? Because they were all together. And it was with boldness they stood can you imagine what it would be like if, if all the Christians, Christ followers, would stand together in unity of spirit for the gospel and the boldness that we would have? The impact that we would have in our public sector, both in government and the school system and the environment and all the people would go, yes, I want to belong. I want to connect to, to you because you really are going to be there. It's this idea of, a, of having a spiritual huddle within this where we come together. One of the greatest tools that we have is to pray together. There's a group that prays on Monday morning. If you can get here at, was it 5.30, I think it is, Monday mornings. 5.30 on Monday mornings, there's a group that prays. There's a group that prays on Sunday mornings. There's a group that prays mid-service on Sundays. On this Sunday for VBS, we are going to have a huddle of prayer after both services to pray for VBS. Why? Because there's strength in numbers, unified in one spirit and you know what? Paul said that that's how we bring down strongholds. Through prayer and through this, this gathering together and this confidence, unified together against the attack. And what ends up happening, he says, and it's a testimony against those that are against you. Why? Because when the enemy looks at this large group of Christians 
that is praying. He's like, I ain't messing with them. There's too many. I ain't messing with them. They're praying. You know who he's going to go after? The one. The roaring lion seeking the one whom he's going to devour within this. Paul says, I am proud of you. But don't in any way be alarmed by your opponents. It's a sign of destruction for them. Why? Because you are together and they're going to be destroyed. The church needs to be strong. And they're going to see this large group of believers standing firm in their faith. Strength in numbers and this value that is there. And it's this transformative. The other thing is it's a witness. You know what's amazing? When the church gathers together in one faith, the faith, and in the Spirit, the world is looking and watching and going, what are they doing? What are they doing? Where is their joy? Why are they so happy? Why are they so connected? What, what is going on? And they are drawn in like a moth to the flame. They want to know. Why? Because people are looking for confident people. And in Christ, we can be confident. Within this. So spiritual unity develops confidence and it's a witness. And, and so with that, people across the world can be brought together. You think about uh, the Voices of Martyrs, the, the magazine, and you think about the, those that were beheaded, the Ethiopians that were beheaded and all that, and the strength that comes. And they were all lined up on that beach. I can picture it in my mind right now. If you haven't seen it, it's an amazing image. Renounce Christ, and they would strengthen numbers. And they would stand firm. And so Paul goes on in verses 29 to 30, stand firm when you suffer for the gospel. We think about this. Stand firm. For you too has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe, but also to suffer. This is one of those passages that you wish you could take out. Because what's interesting about this passage is this. God not only grants the believers the gift of salvation, but He also appoints persecution and suffering within that. As part of your faith journey within this. The Spirit is going to affirm unity of faith, but you also need unity when you are suffering. Paul was drawing great strength from the church of Philippi that was praying for him and encouraging him while he was there within this. And it's interesting because he says this, it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only for you to believe that we like, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. And I was reading this and I thought, Paul, do you mean that suffering is a grace gift? You mean to say, Paul, that suffering and persecution is a grace gift? And the answer is yes. Because God gives the grace unto salvation, but He also gets the grace and he gives the grace gift of suffering within that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 and 9, it says this, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn of the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implore the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, note, 
My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And we talked about this this morning at men's Bible study at 5.30 in the morning. Actually got to this part about 6.30, I suppose. But the reality is this. God gave permission for a demon to give Paul a thorn in the flesh. Literally, it translates to punch him. To give him a thorn in the flesh. And then when Paul said, God, would you stop this? God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. That means that God intended for Paul to do this. Now, we got to thinking about this. We discussed this this morning. What was Paul's number one problem prior to becoming saved? Pride. He was the most driven Pharisee among Pharisees, prideful and arrogant, and he was going to do everything his way. Yet, God allowed this thorn in the flesh, this suffering... And it was a demon that God allowed to continue to do this, demonic, for the purpose of displaying to Paul that power comes in a sense of weakness, that he needed to be in that place. What would keep Paul from becoming the arrogant apostle, since he was already an arrogant Pharisee? This humbling factor that would remind Paul to depend on God's grace. And with every event of suffering, he would have to go to God for relief and depend on He couldn't do it on his own within this. This messenger of Satan was allowed by God to keep Paul in check from prideful self. Now within this, Paul says... It's been granted. And so he's speaking from this experience that when you go through suffering, it is one of the ways that God helps keep us dependent upon Him. A grace gift within this. Secondly, within this, it gives them the ability to understand Paul's predicament, where he's at. Now, when it comes to suffering, a lot of people will say this. When something happens, God, why me? Why me? And I got to thinking, why not you? Why not you? Why me? I don't deserve this. Why me? It's not fair. Why not you? What is God going to show you through this? What is God dealing with in your person that He wants to get rid of? You know, I like this analogy. It's an old analogy. It's been said that a Christian faith is like a tea bag. How do you get the tea out of a tea bag? You put it in hot water. How do you really see what faith is all about? Put it through persecution and suffering. And suffering on the behalf of Christ for the believer reveals that power. In, verse, in chapter 3, verse 10, says this, Paul would say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Do you know when you go through suffering, 
you are being molded in the shape of Jesus who experienced the greatest of suffering. Not only does Jesus know what you're going through, but in your persecution and suffering, you get to know a little bit about what He went through. And what does that bring about? A greater valuing of your salvation. If what I'm going through is only a little bit of what Jesus went through, thank you. Thank you for saving me from all of the suffering that was due to me. And this suffering brings us closer to Christ. It's interesting how when everything is going good in life, you really don't pray a lot. really don't read the Bible a lot. You really don't talk about prayer. But when hell breaks loose over your household, where do you go? On your knees and before God. So suffering isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. So well, you know what I did as I was thinking about this? I thought in my mind, how can, I, how can I circumvent this? How can I not go through suffering? Well, maybe I'll just pray more or read the Bible more. I'll be closer to God more. Because I don't want suffering. Unfortunately, God had already heads that off. And He says, no, that, it doesn't work that way. i got plans for you. The church of Philippi although they didn't have a lot of suffering, they would have a difficult time on the other side. And here's the other reason that Paul says, like me. The church of Philippi never saw Jesus in person, did they? They never really understood a Jew dying on the cross personally, did they? But they knew Paul. And so they could see what perseverance through suffering in Paul would look like by watching Paul and watching how Paul handled the suffering. He would write a parallel message in 1 Thessalonians 2, 14-16 where he says this, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judah. For you also endure the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. And even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, they are not pleasing to God but hostile to all men hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. And with the result, they always fill up measures of their sins and the wrath that's come upon them. We don't know what it's like to really suffer in the United States. We really don't. But when you come to faith in a Muslim country, or you try to come to faith in India right now, read a little bit about what's going on in India right now. You will lose your life if you're, if you're a native of India and you convert somebody. We get a little suffering and they call you, well, you're just a holy roller Christian. Oh, that hurts so bad. I don't want to share Jesus because they might think that I'm religious. Oh, there are places in this world where you can't even own a Bible. If they find out that you've been, you've been sharing the gospel, you go to jail, they throw away the key. Or worse. And so within this, your sufferings becomes a witness for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because you persevere through the suffering because you really believe it. You really believe it. You are dedicated to it and you're not going to give up. You are in one mission. And then so Paul moves on to the next thing, to be unified in mission. Look at verses 1 through 11. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit and any affliction and compassion. Note, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intended on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who also existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that... At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So what does he say? He says, be of one mind, verses 1 through 4. One mind. In order to stand against opposition, you have to be a one mind in Christ. One in spirit, heart to heart. One in mind in the way you think things out and think things through within this. Why? Because one-mindedness in Christ will allow you to live in mission like Christ. Notice it's one mind in Christ. Again, going back to the church universal. What would it be like if every person that names the name of Christ as Lord, Jesus is my Lord, and they lived in the mind of Christ? It would be amazing. It would be unstoppable. It would be like the early church. Where thousands of people would be being saved within that. Not looking out for their own selfish interests or desires. Paul's writing to the church because of this contention and unity. And, and within this, he makes four first class um, clause statements within this. These if clauses that are there. He says, and, and so they're set up in, a, in, in what's called a protasis. It's the, the cause of condition. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and you do, if you've ever heard that word encouragement or encourager before, it's paraclesis. It's the same word that's used for the word Holy Spirit. If you have any paraclesis, any encouragement, if you have the encourager, and you do, you'll be of one mind. Every Spirit-filled Christian can and should operate in the mind of Christ. Every Spirit-filled Christian should start with the mind of Christ. Not start with your theological differences. What is the mind of Christ? He'll unpack that in a minute. But the idea is to be encouraged. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us with all our affliction so that we would be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort by which we ourselves are comforted. Do you realize that the mind of Christ is all about bringing comfort to you? Think about it. Did Jesus have to leave heaven and come save you? No, we were dead in sin, dead in trespass, and didn't even know it. We would spend all eternity in pain, sorrow, suffering, and torment. All eternity. And Jesus would leave heaven... Die on the cross to bring eternal comfort to you, eternal encouragement, a hope, a plan, and a future. And where does that comfort come? From His love. 
if there's any comfort from His love, and there is, which is really an inspired by love, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because He first loved us. I do a lot of counseling, a lot of marriage counseling, a lot of premarital counseling. You know what the one common thread is? In all of it. People want to know that they're loved. People want to know that they're loved. That they are the most valuable person to the other individual. Do you realize that God loves you? That you are the most valuable creation. That He would sacrifice His Son for you. Which is mind-blowing. And I really believe if you were the only one to be saved, Jesus still would have come and died. Because He has redeemed you individually. If there's any fellowship with the Spirit, and there is, that word fellowship, koinonia, or partnership, do Christians have a partnership with God through the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. If there is any encouragement, if there is any love, if there is any common partnership in ministry with the Holy Spirit, and there is, it's a common point of meaning place. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, whether we were all made to drink of one Spirit. And again, we go back to the division aspect. I really don't like them. They dress funny. Who are those young kids that come in with holes all over their head? Who are those old people that are coming in with purple hair? I don't know. You know, if you're really a Christian, you wear a suit. If you're really a Christian, you wouldn't care what I wear. If you're really a Christian, you'd live to hymns. You'd sing hymns. If you're really a Christian, you would have an electric guitar. If you're really a Christian, you have drums. If you're really a Christian, you play a banjo. I don't know. People get weird. We get into this place where we lose sight of the unity. Even prejudice. How would you feel if a member of the LGBTQ community came in with their partner and sat right in this front row, what would you think? Because your first inclination really tells you your focus. What eyes would you see them through? What lens would you see them with? Would it be, <gasps> or would it be, I want to know who they are. You see, the mission of the gospel is to seek and to save the lost, the marginalized, the ones that are on the edges, the ones that have yet to be saved. And you're not going to know that until you have this common mission and common thread that is there. And in Paul's day, the greatest thing, the greatest divisions, was Jew and Greek, free and slave. But in the church, they were all coming together and fellowshipping as one. Church, we need to get back to that.
We need to get back to the unity of the Gospel. The Gospel. And the mission. Which leads to the last conditional clause. If any tenderness and compassion. I love this word. I'll butcher it. But it's a really cool word. There's some words in Greek that um, they're phonetically sound. And the word is splachkna. Yeah, it doesn't sound like anything what it means. It literally, and, and the way, and I can't say it right. It, it's like you're almost like hawking up something out of your lungs. But, but the idea is if there's any tenderness or if there's any emotion that comes from the bowels of your being outwardly towards that person, right? The tenderness, the compassion that wells up in that, that, that existence. For the least and the lost and the marginalized. And there is in Christ. That we need to reflect that compassion. In Colossians 3.12 it says, A one heart of compassion, kind and humility and gentleness and patience. To be the person that God wants you to be, you have to be soft-hearted. You have to be. In fact, I would challenge a person that say that they're transformed by the gospel that's not soft-hearted. I would challenge that. Because the gospel breaks your heart over sin just the same way it breaks God's heart over sin. What's the conclusion of these four ifs that he talks about? If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, if there's any inflection. The, the conclusion of this is by living out these conditions, you're going to have a unified mission. He says, make my joy complete of being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, one mission. One mission. What's the mission? People being saved and people being discipled. One mission. And that's, that's the hope, that's the desire. And it's interesting, like a proud father, he says, make my joy complete. Why would he write this? He's stuck in prison. Those of you that are parents or grandparents, one of the coolest things that you could ever do is, is train up your kids in a sport or an event or doing something and sit in the stands and watch them do it. And watch them excel. And you're sitting in the stands and you're not participating, but you're just sitting there watching and going, that's my kid. Everybody, that's my kid. Soccer moms are really good at it. Baseball dad's really good at it. In fact, baseball dads get a little bit overzealous. But you look at it. That's Paul. He's sitting in prison going, those are my kids. Make my joy complete. Do it well. Be like-minded. Live the same mission of the Gospel. The same purpose. What's Paul's purpose? Evangelism. What's the church's purpose? Evangelism. I think there are, it's interesting because within there's, there's a couple of things that are harmonious. Three of them exactly. That you'll have a harmonious mission. In other words, selfless service. The mode of the behavior. Next week we're going to have a hundred volunteers hanging out with close to 250 to 275, maybe 300 kids. They're not getting paid for it. I mean, long days. You're going to have to deal with kids and attitudes and all the different things. You're going to decorate all these things. The kids are going to come in and go, where's my craft? Where's my food? I didn't get this. He's touching me. But you know what the blessing is? 
I've been doing this long enough to watch those kids that come through VBS end up becoming VBS teachers, Sunday school workers, parents that are raising their kids in their church. And as a proud dad, you go, yeah, good job. Harmonious in the mission, this selfless act to be able to sacrifice yourself. So what's the opposite of self-sacrifice? Selfishness. Who's the king of selfishness? Satan. You're only in one of the two camps. You're either in the kingdom of God and self-sacrificing, or you're in the kingdom of this world and under Satan, and you are self-centered. You're only in one of the two camps. And so the unity of the body means you're operating in a selfless way as being part of the church, where Satan wants to destroy unity. Secondly, harmonious in love, which literally is, again, to love like Jesus. How did Jesus love? How did he love? He left heaven, as Paul's going to allude to in a minute. And he came to earth, added to himself humanity, died on a cross, a sinner's death when he didn't have to, rose again for the lost, out of obedience. To be rooted and grounded in love is to love like Christ's love, harmoniously. And the third one is harmonious consideration for others, which literally means to seek the best for the other. Years and years ago, there was a, a cartoon that I used to watch as a kid. Most of you that are older are going to know these characters. They've changed the names of the characters and used them in the wrong way. But if you remember the chipmunks that used to be called Chip and Dale, they were cartoon characters before they became something else. And it was always amazing to me because if you remember the annoying thing, you go first, no, you go first, no, you go first, no, you go first. That was considering the other as the priority, to look out for the best interest of the other, setting aside your concerns. So Paul says these three things, to love, to be in unity, to seek out the, the other. So what does that look like? 5 to 11. In 5 to 11, Paul laid out an example. Who's the best example of, of really what love is? Jesus. And he lays it out in an interesting way. How do we have this mind of Christ? Now, in verses 5 through 11, specifically 6 through 11, a lot of people have had a problem with this. And, and with this passage, one of the difficulties, though, is if, if you want me to live a certain way, what does it look like? We tend to, we tend to compare ourselves to other people, don't we? I'm pretty good. You know why I'm pretty good? Because I go find five other people that are worse than me. And I feel better about myself. I can always find people worse than me. So I can feel good about myself. And whenever I think that something's gone wrong, it's not my fault, it's your fault. And I'll point the finger. You know how Paul gets around this? You want to compare yourself to somebody? Compare yourself to Jesus. Oh, that's not fair. He's Jesus. No. If you have the mind of Christ, you should compare yourself to Jesus. I don't know how many marriage counseling, especially wives, come in and, and they, they talk about, you know, loving their husband as Christ. And they say, well, I'll, if he, when he starts being like Jesus, then I'll start loving him. You know, and, and within this, no. In this, we have to have the mind of Christ individually. 
And we say, well, I'm not as bad as that person, and they're not doing it right. Paul, says, Paul calls out the Philippians, and he says, no, compare yourself against Jesus. And as I said, this passage has been debated by theologians and all these people. We're not going to get all hung up in the weeds on this thing. Every verse in this passage, 6 to 11, has been debated and torn apart, and it would take me forever to do that. Because of what's in it, it is a powerful passage. It's Christological, it's soteriological, it's eschatological, it, it, or I'm sorry, not eschatological, ecclesiastical. Eschatological is end times. Ecclesiastical is church. It talks about Christ, it talks about salvation, and it talks about the church. And how it's all broken out. Say, Carrie, those are big words, so let's get down to the nitty gritty. What does this say? This is the example of servanthood. When you live up to this standard, then you're living up like Christ. What does it look like? Talking about Christ, verse 5, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regain or regard, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. What did Jesus do? Jesus left heaven. First point, is Jesus fully God? Shake your head yes. Otherwise, we've got to go back to Christianity 101. Yes, Jesus, fully God, second person of the Trinity, existed in eternity, created everything. God's plan of redemption. The Father says to the Son, I want you to go and be the sacrifice for all mankind. Jesus says, yes, leaves heaven, fully God, comes to earth, adds to himself humanity, but does not set aside any deity. He is no less God the whole time he's on earth. But he adds to himself 100% humanity, becoming the true God-man within this. The phrase, emptied himself, is called the kenosis. And, and to get really fancy, what it does is Jesus' ability to self-regulate and say, I am setting aside and not operating in my condition of deity because I'm adding to myself humanity and I will operate in the limitations of a human body. What's the limitation of a human body? You can only be in one place at one time. You can get tired. You can get hungry. You can live and you can die. But he added to himself a sinless human body so that he would be the perfect sacrifice. Hear me clearly. Jesus did not lose any divine attributes. None. Still fully God. He is no less God, but adding to himself humanity, he had these limitations and in location. The theologians call this what's called a hypostatic union. It's bringing the two entities into one person, the God-man. Both natures were necessary for redemption. As a man... Jesus would represent all mankind and die a human death, paying the death penalty for 
mankind's sin. As divine, simultaneously, because He's divine, that one man's death would be adequate for all mankind, for all eternity. No limitations. Now your mind's going. Now that we got the... And then, that's what Jesus did, that in verses 9 through 11, God is the rewarder. God rewarded the Son for His obedience. How did He reward Him? He rewarded Him, verse 9, He highly exalted Him, literally returned Him back to His place of authority, gave Him the name above every name, which is Lord, so that, Henneclaus, that the the name of Jesus, every knee will bow for those in heaven, on earth, under the earth. How many dimensions is that? Three. Does that mean the demonic realm? Yes. Human realm? Yes. Eternal realm in heaven? Yes. Rewarded Him with all authority within this, that they would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Notice them both being there. Now you say, Carrie, why is this important? Why did you give me theology? Here's the reason why. Before you get caught up in the hypostatic union, before you get caught up in the kenosis, understand this. In context, Paul was saying, have this mind in you that is in Christ. What was the mind of Christ? Very simply, to be obedient to the Father and to give His life for the other. To be obedient to the Father, to love, and to give His life for the other. So that the ones He would redeem would be one with Him. Unity. We get all caught up in the weird stuff, but don't get caught up in the weird stuff. Keep it simple. What is the mind of Christ? Love the other. Live sacrificially for the other so that the other would benefit from that sacrifice. And God will reward you. Paul quotes Isaiah 52.13 in this context. He says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up, be exalted. In Isaiah 45.23, he also quotes, he says, I have sworn by myself that the word has gone forth from my mouth and righteous, and I will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Lordship. So within this, the last thing of unity that he looks at is this, in verses 12 to 18. So then, again, another henna clause, purpose clause. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence. Note, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So in light of the mind of Christ, to love others, to seek unity, to live sacrificially, You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have a reason to glory, because I didn't run in vain or toil in vain, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you. You too, I urge to rejoice in the same way. In other words, what should we do? Live a united witness. As you've learned of Christ, live it out on a daily basis. 
Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He is not saying salvation is a gift of works. He's not. Work out your salvation is the exercise of faith as you're being saved and sanctified because he says after that, he says it's a work of God to will and to do. So what does it look like? God, I really want to serve you. I really want to love these people and I want to serve them and I'm not quite sure how to do it, but to do it I need to give up my time. I've got I to use some of the talents you've given. Lord, will you show me what to do and how to serve them? God says, I will. I give you that desire and I give you the ability to go do that. As you are sacrificially serving others, you are learning more about what Jesus went through. You're learning more about what it means to live sacrificially, to have the mind of Christ. People are looking at you going, why are you loving me so much? Why are you encouraging me so much? Why are you seeking a relationship with me because you're weird? You say, it's not me, it's God working through me. Can I tell you about my Jesus? Can I tell you about what's moving me? I don't know why, but God put it on my heart to do this for you. It's God that wills for us to will and to do. God gives us that. And then our life becomes that witness. It's a pickup from verse 27 of the first chapter where Paul would say this, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of what you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving together. There's that word again. In the field, working together. And it's under this concept of lordship. If God was to tell you to go to Africa, would you go? And you're like, I don't know, maybe. If God was to tell you to pack lunches and go feed the homeless, would you go? If God would tell you to, as you're driving down the street, to stop and help a person that's in need, would you? All of these are opportunities. And when the Holy Spirit moves, do it. Because God gives you the will to both will and do. And when you do, these are divine opportunities for witness and opportunities for practical faith. Practical faith is working out your salvation in practical ways. It's the idea of, of focusing on that. And it's a positive steadfastness that you keep doing it, and it results in joy within this. Faith has to be practical, not theoretical. If you call yourself a Christian and living Christ-like, but you don't live like Jesus, you're not living practical faith. Years and years and years ago, there was a movement called WWJD. Do you remember it? And it stands for what? What would Jesus do? It all came from a book that tells an account of a time by Shelton. I can't remember the first name. And the name of the book, if you ever have an opportunity to read this book, it's a phenomenal book. It's called In His Steps. And In His Steps, it depicts the account of what would happen if people made a decision to only do the things that Jesus would do. And it brought about revival. 
People were moved. The prostitute, prostitutes stopped being prostitutes. The alcoholics stopped drinking. Churches were growing. What would Jesus do in this? It was a movement that came about in the 80s and we saw another big movement within this. And it has to do with our, our conduct and being steadfast. I love what Paul says and he hits the mark. He says, okay, you're going to do what Jesus would do? Stop complaining and stop disputing. Stop complaining. Well, what does that mean? Stop complaining. If the goal of number of verse 15 is to prove yourself blameless and innocent children of God in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation, then you hold fast to the word of God. But verse 14 says you stop complaining and stop disputing so that you can prove that you're a child of God. In other words, you're living in a crooked and perverse generation, aren't we? Are we living in a crooked and perverse generation? Okay, so Paul says, if you're living in a crooked and perverse generation, and you are, we are, stop complaining and disputing. If I went on your Facebook account, what would I see? What would I see? How many times do we complain and fight and argue and grumble and all of these things? I was convicted a while ago, not, not a super long time ago, but I was convicted a while ago about complaining about some situations. And mind you, in my flesh, I get caught up with it every day. I do. But the amount of complaining that happens and disputing and arguing that happens on Facebook is astronomical. And do you realize that on the same page that you're writing down, I attend Warren Community Fellowship, come to this event, you're also complaining about government and all these other people. Now that I've thoroughly convicted you, what should you do? You should be a light. You should seek to be blameless. You're so, I'm not saying get rid of social media. Social media can be used for God's good. Use social media for good, not a place to vent. Facebook is the worst place to have an argument. It's like, it's like punching somebody in the face and running away. If you, if you want to discuss something with somebody, take them out for coffee and have a discussion. Don't do it in the public arena. Within this. But what should you do? You should let that light shine. You should be blameless and innocent children of God among a crooked and first generation. Let your light shine and hold out the word of life. I love let your light shine. It's, it's a picture of this. Let your light shine. Or if you have a candle, hold it out so it benefits other people. You hold out the word of God so it illuminates their path. You want to you really make a difference? Hold out the word of God. And people will see that there's a difference in how you're loving. And that's living missionally. Not selfishly. And the selfish motivation. Lastly, Paul does say, and if you do this, you're going to make my joy complete. Why? Because I'm being poured out as a drink offering. Was Paul saying that for pity? No. He just says, I'm sacrificing it all. Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God... Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual act of service. Our life is nothing but a vapor. 
But if our life is going to be a vapor, may it be a sweet-smelling savor to God. We need to be able to do that. We're going to go ahead and pause right there. We're going to pick up in two weeks Paul's plan. He breaks off here in, in verse 19 and just gives a little paragraph about his plan for Timothy and Epaphrodites to go on. And then we're going to pick up in chapter 3 here in two weeks. But now we're going to go ahead and get ready for a time of just reflecting on this great relationship that we have. First of the month, whether it's on Sundays or Wednesdays, we celebrate communion. The night before Jesus died, he gathered his disciples together. And he broke the bread and he gave it to them. And he said, take, eat. This bread represents my body, given for you. As often as you eat this bread, remember me. In the same way, he took the cup and he gave it to them. And he said, take this cup, drink all of it. This cup is a, a, a symbol of the new covenant ratified in my blood. As often as you drink it, remember me. We do this to be of one mind, one spirit, one faith, the faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. If you're one, as I share often, that has sin in your life that you're not willing to get rid of, that you're dealing with and struggling with, do business with God now before you take communion. Ask Him to forgive you of your sin so that you can come before this table and take it with the right attitude. Because it's all about attitude. It's an act of worship. This will not save you. Jesus does. The worship team will come up and lead us in, in music. We can reflect when you're ready, come up and take the elements, serve yourself. But hang on to them until everybody's been served, and then I'll pray and we'll take them together. God, we thank you for this time. And as we enter into this time of reflection, may our hearts be transparent before you. May you see us clearly and be honored by everything we do. In Jesus' name. Praises, how could we? 
thank you for this bread that we're about to receive. We are united together in one body with you as the head, Lord Jesus Christ. And what puts us together is, is a work that you have done. You, you redeemed us. You purchased us with yourself. You paid the penalty for our sin to give us life and that much more. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you didn't stay in heaven, that you, that you came to earth. Felt everything that we go through. Fought every battle that we fight. And you were victorious. Even the battle of death you won. We thank you for what this bread reminds us of. This bread reminds us of new life guaranteed by your resurrection. We thank you for it. As we receive it, we do so as an act of worship and remembrance and honoring you. In Jesus' name. So I'll take the bread. God, we thank you. Praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. Holy, holy is the Lamb. Lord Jesus, we lift up this glass. Sanctify it to this body. You make us holy. You make us pure. You make us clean. And your blood cleanses us from all sins, past, present, and future, and for all eternity. We are reminded today of that high price, though, the shedding of your blood. Lord, as we receive this cup, we do so by faith, in honor of you, and ask your blessing upon it. May we be one mind, one spirit, striving together for the gospel, so that all will see and see you in Jesus' name. Let's receive the cup. Thank you, Lord. 
in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.